Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing in our series, God and the Problem of Evil, with a message entitled, The Matchless Glory of God the Warrior. So let's turn in our Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 1 to 16, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I'm reading Habakkuk 3, 1 to 16. Prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigion Oath. O Lord, I have heard of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of years, revive it. In the midst of years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like light. Rays flashed from his hands, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on the chariot of your salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place, and the light of your arrows as they sped at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the head of his warriors, who became like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear and my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones, my legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Habakkuk chapter 3 contains one of the great descriptions of God appearing in power. I've read these 16 verses in one reading just to allow us to feel the power of this description. We need to hear of mountains writhing in his presence, of the sun and moon standing still in his presence, of God pulling the protective sheath from his bow, of his arrows flying forward glinting in the sun, of the heads of the wicked crushed beneath him, of his war horses churning up the ocean, and of every body becoming weak and trembling, and then giving up and falling down. This is our God, mighty in battle, overwhelming in splendor, all creation writhing before him. Who dares rouse our God? Before one looks at the details of this passage, it is utterly important to simply feel the force of its raw power. Behold our God. But we really do need to look at the details to understand. At first, the reader needs to understand that the verb tenses are a bit of a challenge to the person translating this passage. They are in the Hebrew perfect tense, and the perfect tense doesn't necessarily give us a sense whether what Habakkuk is describing is in the past or the present or the future. Will God appear this way in the future, or has he done so in the past, or is this what God showed Habakkuk about himself, and thus he's describing in the present what he saw? You know, it's hard to say. The grammar is tough. Now, from the reading of the passage, it seems to be about the past, but it's about the present and the future as well. 
You see, in Hebrew, the perfect tense is to give a sense of absolute certainty. It's not a matter of when this will happen, but it's a sense when we describe God that this is a certainty. This, this is how he is. You can be certain that this is our God. And because this is how God is, you can also be certain that the God who exists will not allow evil to survive in his presence. We can break this passage down into several sections, and the first is in verses 1 to 2, where, where Habakkuk prays that when God comes, he would not forget to have mercy on those who hope in him. And then in verses 3 to 7, the second section, we see God's actual arrival. You'll notice that God comes from Teman, which is a reference to Edom, or simply a reference to the south of Israel. You know, if you know your Bible history, you're going to know that all the evil invaders always come from the north. The great empires, first Assyria and then Babylonia, they were to the east of Israel. But between them and Israel, there was this great inhospitable desert. And so invaders would follow what would become known as the Fertile Crescent. It was land that was habitable, and it went in a semicircle. And so nations would travel north following good land, and then from the north would sweep down onto Israel. But here in this passage, Habakkuk is not describing the invasion of Babylon, but rather God coming from Teman. Teman can simply mean from the south. And then to the south is Mount Paran. And that's a reference to Mount Sinai, where Israel had received the Ten Commandments. That's where God came to them as a nation for the first time. In a barren desert that looks like the surface of the moon, where, where no one lives, there in a scorching wilderness before a mountain, God revealed himself as he truly is. Notice the words of God's revelation. Splendor praise, brightness, rays flashing from his hand. Now, that's a description of the day God visited his people at Mount Sinai. Exodus 19, verses 16 to 20 says, On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. Then from the mountain, God spoke the Ten Commandments. You know, that's amazing because it's the only time in history that an entire nation has heard the voice of God. And what was the response? Exodus 20, 18 to 19 says, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses would never forget that scene. And years later in Deuteronomy 32, he would completely describe it again, along with the, the ten thousands, perhaps millions of angels that accompanied God on that day. The spectacle of God's coming to the mountain was so terrifying that the nation of Israel thought they would die. They cried out in terror. They, they begged God to stop speaking. It was more than they could take. Here is no tame, domesticated God, the God of human imagination, or the gods of Egypt, or the gods of the idol makers. But here is the God who exists. And yet, as God reminds Habakkuk in this scene, he tells Habakkuk that even in this, look carefully now at verse 4, even in this... This kind of a revelation, God veiled his power. In other words, if God had not hidden his full glory, all that would have been left would have been carnage and death. 
See, I remember years ago hearing about the first U.S. soldiers who were ordered to witness the first test of the atomic bomb. Soldiers were to dig a trench and to get down into it and cover themselves with their faces to the ground and then close their eyes and still. Those soldiers testified that all they could see was the most brilliant and blinding light, brighter than the sun. You know, to stand in the presence of God unveiled is to stand before a nuclear blast only much greater. It would tear body from soul and would decimate us. And that's why the prayer of Moses in Exodus 33 verse 18 is, is so audacious, so, so filled with desire, yet so terrifying as he cried out, God, show me your glory. Now, who, if that person had even the slightest notion of whom it was that they're asking it of, would dare ever to pray such a prayer? See, in verse 5 of Habakkuk 3, we're told that before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. You know, the plague that followed at God's heels were the recent plagues that had fallen on Egypt and decimated their nation. The pestilence that went before him refers to such judgments as the snakes he unleashed among Israel to punish them for their sins. And all around God are the bodies of sinners who have fallen under his righteous judgment. And then according to verse 6, he shakes the nation so that when we come to verse 7, we see, I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. God now moves to a description of the nations he destroyed before Israel. These two mention in the book of Judges as Cushan Rishathaim, the first oppressor of Israel and Midian, the nation that was routed before Gideon. Why were the nations that were destroyed by Joshua? Then all the way to David and Solomon, why were these nations unable to stand before Israel when she came? And surely it was not Israel's armies, for their training and warfare was not enough to take the land that was before them. And besides, Egypt had a stake in Palestine, and they would not so quickly have let that crucial piece of real estate go. Now, the only explanation of all that happened to Israel is that the Eternal One had come down from Mount Paran and had only partially revealed his glory. What should happen if his full glory were to be revealed? From February 7th to 16th, 2020, make plans to join us for our Back to the Bible Canada Laugh Again Southern Caribbean Cruise. You'll be sailing the seas for nine days aboard Royal Caribbean's Explorer of the Seas visiting Aruba, Curacao, Bonaire, and more. You'll be joining Back to the Bible Canada's Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh Again's Phil Calloway, and now confirmed special friends and musicians, Shane and Angela Weeb. I guarantee you'll be spiritually enriched and challenged, you'll laugh and be encouraged, and you'll enjoy great fellowship and refreshment. The Back to the Bible Canada Laugh Again Caribbean Cruise is a unique opportunity for connection, and we'd love to see you join us. Come on your own or with family and friends as you enjoy incredible ports of call, everything the ship has to offer, and a week of ministry designed specifically for the occasion. Check it all out at backtothebible.ca, laughagain.ca, or call 1-800-663-2425. We can't wait to set sail with you. If you've been following this series on Habakkuk, you'll remember that the occasion for the writing of this book was Habakkuk's complaint to God. Why do you look idly by while evil seems to have its day, doing what it will? 
And you'll remember that at one point in time in this book, Habakkuk goes to one of the watchtowers outside of Jerusalem and just sits there, waits for God to answer. And you'll also remember that the greatness of the vision that God gives him. And from that vision, Habakkuk 3 tells us that the only possible response is worship. It's to finally realize that God truly is God. He who forever lives is so much greater than we had ever imagined. Near Habakkuk learns the most basic fact. The God of history is the God who exists and will come at the end of time. He should not fear Babylon. He should fear God. That's the issue. How easy it was to only think of the Babylonian might and not the God who permits what he permits. I wonder how many of us need to hear that same message. See, what do you fear? You fear economic downturns or do you fear losing your job? Maybe you fear disease or maybe you fear war. Do you fear people? Perhaps you should be introduced to the God who is. How many of you know that this is our problem? It takes a revelation to stop fearing evil and to start fearing or trusting in God. You know, but someone might say, but how do I get there? See, the Bible says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. But some of you are going to say, well, I've read that and I hear that, but I've never gotten there. See, I fear the valley of the shadow of death. You know, Hebrews 3.15 may promise that Christ is able to deliver all those who through fear of death are subject to lifelong slavery, but someone might testify, yeah, but I'm filled with fear. So I want you to go back to Habakkuk 3, verse 2. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. You may need to go to God and say, I've heard the report of you in the midst of my years. I beg you, revive your ancient work. Show me your glory. Did you catch that? Fear of evil is not overcoming by fighting your fears. You know, I have this fear of heights, so every time I'm on a hike with friends, they always choose to take me to the cliffs. You know, over the years, I've gotten much better. I I have been fighting my fears, and I think I'm starting to overcome. I have little tricks to master my fears, and one is I never look down. And second, I concentrate on my feet one step at a time and so forth. But that's not what I'm talking about here. What we need with our fear of evil is the solution of a revelation of God's matchless glory. That's what you and I must long for and plead with God for. Will you do that? So let's read on. Verse 8. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? Now here Habakkuk is asking God a question. He's been speaking about Sinai and the deliverance from Egypt. Was your indignation against the Red Sea? Were you angry with the waters when you made them stand up in a heap and they could not move? And then notice in the last part of the verse, when you rode on your chariot of salvation. You have to imagine this. Pharaoh's chariots are stuck in the mud as they try to cross the Red Sea, and the sea was about to drown them, but the Lord's chariot had no such problem. God's chariot bore all the children of Israel on through the sea and worked out their salvation. And then in verses 9 to 11, we see God taking the sheath that that housed his bow off, and he's getting ready for battle. The arrows and thunderbolts and the sun and the moon stand still, and, and I think he's referencing Joshua chapter 10, verse 11, where God made the sun to stand still as as Joshua fought against his enemy and how God hurled down large hailstones from heaven and, and destroyed the enemy. And all this comes to a conclusion in verse 12. You march through the earth in fury. You thresh the nations in anger. 
You see, God was not angry with nature as it convulsed and reeled. Rather, nature was his tool to destroy and punish evil nations. It's like Jesus walking on the water and calming the storm. Nature, because it is God's creation, responds to the orders of the Creator as nature does the work that God orders it to do. We must see this as a response to Habakkuk's prayer, that God revive his ancient work. God says, I have and will reveal my matchless glory. In the last days, the book of Revelation describes Jesus in a way that many of us never think of him. I'm reading Revelation 6, verses 15 to 17. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand. But of course, the caves and rocks and the mountains are a part of God's nature and nothing hides the workers of evil from the wrath of Jesus. Make no mistake about it. God has visited nations in wrath in the past, and in the future, the whole earth will come under his wrath. See, one of the great motivations to do evangelism is just this. The first Christian sermon ever preached was preached by Peter on the day of Pentecost, and that sermon was recorded by Luke in Acts chapter 2. The very last words of that sermon are the words, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. He meant that this generation would receive wrath, and you can't afford to be identified with this generation. Let me try to make Peter's point in a contemporary fashion. Save yourself from this crooked and twisted culture. Save yourself from the values and the ideals of the nation that you live in. Now, the idea, of course, is that the highest ideals of our culture or nation falls far short of the glory of God. We must flee from that which our culture teaches, and we must fly to that which alone provides us with salvation. That's motivation to come to Christ. He is your only hope to rescue you from the village of the damned, from the culture that belongs to and will soon join the damned cultures of past generations. If you identify yourself with this value base, you will not stand in the day when the Holy One, the great warrior God, reveals his matchless glory. You know, it strikes me at this point that some of you have never heard of the wrath of the Lamb and of the terrors of the great judgment. You assure yourself with the thought that God will understand your sins and be considerate of your unique circumstances. But since God was not understanding of the ancient world in the time of Noah, when he killed everyone with a flood, or of Egypt when he killed all their firstborn, he was not understanding of the nations that Joshua destroyed, even sending hailstones to kill them. And so does it not seem to you that these past events are a revelation of a God whose face is set to destroy evil? He is too holy to tolerate your sin. Might it not seem to you that the promise of wrath to come is in the future as well as in the past? See, some of you today may shrug me off thinking nothing of the kind can be true, but these are but myths of a less genteel past. But you forget that what was done in the past and you ignore this to your everlasting peril. When God reveals himself, he threshes the nations in his anger. But of course, this is never where our God simply leaves things. 
I'm so happy about that. He always offers us hope. That is, he offers hope while we are yet living. I'm rereading verse 13. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of those of the wicked, laying them bare from thigh to neck. You know, the contrast here could not be greater. In the final day, God will make a distinction between his people and his anointed one and the house of the wicked. You know, what's of note, however, is that the word anointed one, which is in Hebrew, it's, it's the word Mashiach or Messiah. The Greek translation of Messiah is the word Christ. How does God go out for the salvation of the Messiah? How did he save his Christ? Well, in the fullness of time, the Father would save his Christ in the resurrection of the Son from the dead. And as he saved his Christ, he also saved those whose lives were hidden in his Christ. And that, my dear friends, is the great conundrum. If you seek to save yourself by counting on this world and this society and this culture's promises, you're going to die. But if you're willing to throw your life away and trust solely in Christ, then yours will be the resurrection of his Christ. And so for all of you who hear me, there is before you an eternal choice. You will either identify yourself with this world of the damned and lose your soul, or you will gladly give up your life and trust in the God whose glory is matchless, and you will find the only safe place where you can stand. Make your choice. John, just quickly, an extension of something we talked about yesterday, but there's a sense in the culture that we have a loving God, and that's the preeminent sort of characteristic of who God is. But that doesn't mean he's going to overlook sin, does it? Yeah, and and this is so important to, to, again, review this matter, because if we make the glory of God our first concern, then to find that God would give grace and be loving is surprising, overwhelming, and something that, that is, is more than we could have imagined. But if we start with this premise of love and define it in our own terms, then we think of love as a matter-of-fact thing. And we're not overwhelmed with the love of God at all. And, and I think, Ben, that's why so many people today are not surprised or enamored by the love of God. They have never seen the glory of God. They don't know who God is and simply assume that they're worshiping love rather than worshiping a God who is altogether glorious. Thanks so much, John. And join us again tomorrow. Back to the Bible Canada leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Lorraine wrote, Listening to Back to the Bible Canada and Laugh Again starts my day off right. It amazes me how God's love reaches into my life daily through these programs. God's Word is so precious. I also get a real lift from Laugh Again with Phil. Sometimes I just need that chuckle to help get me through the day. Lorraine, thank you. Your encouragement lets us know lives are being touched and the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada are making a difference. Has your life been impacted by the Word of God and the ministry of Back to the Bible Canada? With your consistent support as a monthly partner, or because of your gift today, the good news is being shared across our nation. To join in the ministry of Back to the Bible Canada, Laugh Again, or In Doubt, call us with your gift at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.